Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am so proud to declare that I was once a Filipino nurse, though not practicing as a nurse now. My heart is still in it. As one may say, once a nurse, you will always be a nurse. At age 19, I finished a five-year Bachelor of Science in Nursing at Far Eastern University in Manila, Philippines. Shortly thereafter, I was fortunate to go to the United States on an H-1 visa to escape the violence of martial law on activists, which I was during the Marcos regime. I worked in trauma at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia and proceeded to Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago, where I worked in the ICU full-time while working on my pre-med curriculum and later stayed as a medical student at Rush University Medical School. After that, I proceeded to join Stanford for my internship and residency in internal medicine. As a full-time clinical professor of medicine now at Stanford, I continue to teach and mentor young pre-med medical students and residents and also take students as early as high school to the Philippines to immerse them in community global health projects with my nonprofit, ABCs for Global Health. My goal is to utilize my expertise to drive innovations, not only in medicine, but in nursing, as well as to improve the way we take care of people both here and abroad. As a commitment to this multidisciplinary approach to healthcare, Pearson published a textbook to address this, and I am proud to be the co-author of that textbook. Its title is Patient-Focused Assessment, the Art and Science of Clinical Data Gathering. It is my belief that since we take care of the same patients, all of us, doctors, nurses, PAs, and nurse practitioners, should have no boundaries in teaching and learning the science and the skill, but only collaboration. This collaboration is key nowadays, especially as we battle the pandemic. I am a mother of two and single-handedly raised my two kids since age eight and nine when I lost my husband to pancreatic cancer at age 42. My daughter is a frontliner as a resident in emergency medicine at UCLA now. My son joined the arts as a producer in esports in also Los Angeles. So why a podcast on Filipino nurses? Well, Filipino nurses are frontline workers in the U.S. and for decades are the main supply chain in nursing for the U.S. and the world. They are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 in terms of infection rates and the rate of deaths. Plus, I am a Filipino, a nurse, and a healthcare worker and cares a lot about 
our healthcare workers. Historically, since the 60s, Catherine Choi, a professor of ethnic studies at UC Berkeley, estimates more than 150,000 Filipino nurses have migrated to the U.S. This migration continues on with up and down fluctuations based on demand for their services. Filipino nurses are largely concentrated in large cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Miami, Boston, and New York. The Philippines continue to be the leading exporter of professional nurses to the U.S. and other countries. Now, the first generation of Filipino-American nurses trained in the U.S. are a large contributor to nursing workforce. Thanks to the modeling for hard work, compassion, and professionalism from their parents who migrated to the United States. This podcast will highlight the contribution of Filipino nurses to healthcare in the U.S. It is aimed to increase our awareness to the disproportionate numbers of deaths and infection rates from COVID-19 and explore the reasons why. We will then devise an action plan to enhance Filipino nurses' well-being and quality of life. I am pleased to welcome our four guests in alphabetical orders. I have Dr. Jennifer Aying, who holds a doctorate in nursing practice, a nurse practitioner at the VA Boston Healthcare, chair of the Philippine Nurses Association of America COVID-19 Task Force. The task force assesses the impact of the pandemic and develops programs for the physical, psychological, emotional, educational, as well as healthcare to heal the nurses. Our next exciting person in the panel is Emily Danuco, who is the current president of the PNAA Western Region, COPRR, which has, I think, 18 chapters, and also the president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Northern California. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Far Eastern University, which is my alma mater as well. She is a liver transplant coordinator at CPMC, which is California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. She is a single mother of one, as I am, has a son who is following her footsteps in nursing. He is a medical student at the University of Portland, so he is raising him single-handedly. And he is also the youngest of 12 from Bukidnon. I am one of the youngest of 10, so... Anyhow, the next one is our very own Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia, also has a doctorate in nursing practice, master's degree in nursing informatics. She is the current president elect of the Philippine Nurses Association of America. She was a member of the National Advisory Committee for Research on Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Health, funded by the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. Dr. Garcia Dia has a clinical background on critical care nursing and nursing informatics. She recently published a book, Project Management in Nursing Informatics. Her theme is SPARK, which stands for Stories of People, Achievement, Resilience, and Kindness. It is rooted in concepts of narratives in nursing and Mary Joy's research interests on resilience and structural empowerment. 
Next, but not the least, is Dr. Igor Makoro, who also has a doctorate in nursing practice and practices as an advanced practice nurse, a family nurse practitioner in California. He is the president-elect of the Philippine Nurses Association of Northern California. He currently works as a nurse manager at the city and county of San Francisco. I feel privileged to be joined by all of you accomplished leaders in broadening our understanding of how we can take care of our healthcare workers, especially our very own, the Filipinos and the Filipino-American healthcare workers. This is in response to the CNN coverage on December 2020, where CNN highlighted that a third of the nurses who died of COVID-19 are Filipinos, even though Filipino nurses only make up 4% of the nursing population in the United States. Also, on the September report of Ms. Senny Cortez, a Filipino-American nurse and a co-president of the National Nurses United, the largest nursing union in the U.S., found also in September that 67 out of 213 registered nurses who died of COVID-19 are Filipinos. Since then, I am sure the death toll has increased, unfortunately. So at that time and until about a few months ago, the death toll is about 30% of the U.S. task force among Filipino nurses. So... We haven't even broached the topic of caretakers because not only that we have a lot of nurses, but we also have a lot of caretakers who are Filipinos, doctors, physical therapists, occupational therapists, radiologists, there are radiology technicians, lots of them are Filipinos. Catherine Choi, a professor of ethnic studies from UC Berkeley, has stated that this is not really a new phenomenon. For decades, Filipino nurses have always been in the front lines on health crisis around the world, not just in the U.S. So before we embark on why Filipino nurses are disproportionately affected, we could probably start by describing a Filipino nurse. If you ask people how they describe a Filipino nurse, what would you say in one or few words? This is Mary Joy. I would probably say hardworking. Hardworking. For me, warm and very compassionate and caring. Warm, compassionate and caring. I echo that. Me, they smile always. They don't disagree with if they assign you to that setting they will just go they do not even ask why and they are very very hard working i agree with that that's a universal experience no complaints just do the work other than that what i've mentioned that's very compassionate uh, philippine nurses usually they're quiet i would say and they like to volunteer be their colleagues and help their co and they're also not just thinking of themselves, but also thinking of their families and their patients as part of their, their families and extension. I agree. So big hearts, they treat people like their family, will do everything for you. I heard that from surveys that I asked, uh, hardworking, selfless, loyal, sense of humor, funny. They always laugh and smile. They always bring food. As we properly describe a Filipino nurse or a Filipino healthcare worker, we will now embark on the why are Filipino nurses are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. 
I think there are many factors that's why or reasons why Filipino nurses are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. For one, the aggregate race and ethnicity data on COVID-19 cases and deaths do not really capture or adequately capture the disproportionate burden of the Asian subgroups like the Filipino Americans. And also, there's no state or except the Hawaii that publicly really report the Filipino-specific data, but instead representing us aggregated estimates of Asians mm-hmm. overall. So this leaves this disparity unrecognized and unaddressed. And another factor is the absence of disintegrated uh, data is concerning for Filipino-Americans are three times more likely to have comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, both risk factors of the COVID-19 illness. And another factor that the Filipino nurses are overrepresented, as you just said, that they work in high-risk clinical areas like working in the critical care, ER, acute care, cardiac, where areas of high risk of COVID-19 are. This data is consistent with our survey when we did the survey in our Philippine Nurses Association of the America that it showed that close to 50% of our nurses work in the highest areas. And another thing is the Filipino Americans live in a household with at least one healthcare worker. We are the second highest across all racial and ethnic groups. For Filipino-American households, the rest of household transmission are particularly pronounced as 38% of households are both multi-generational and includes one or more health workers in our family. I agree with that because I see all over here, especially in California, I'm sure this is also on the East Coast, that we take care of our own. So we have our parents, our grandparents, and our kids, and sometimes aunts and uncles also. So I think it can be a crowded household unless you're super rich and have a huge home. So I think we bring home also probably everything that we have, we are exposed to from our respective work. And why do you think Filipinos or Filipino nurses work in high-risk areas? Why do you think that is? Looking into just my group of close friends, like eight out of 10 of us work in ICU, med surge, and all work full-time, 40 hours or more. So I think just a concentration of direct care to COVID patients and exposure and the longer hours that we work just put that higher risk for contracting the virus. And so I think that's primarily the reason that why we're affected, we have the highest number among Asians, I think. And also with when I was looking at the Kanlungan website, just look at the two nurses that died from COVID-19. Both of them had comorbidities. They have diabetes. So I think that's also, we are high risk because of that. Yeah, I I guess if you look at Filipinos, not only uh, here, but also in the Philippines, we have 
high incidence and prevalence of hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and obesity now. So obesity is also rising in the Philippines. About 40 to 60 percent among women in the Philippines are overweight and obese now. So I think we have to approach that in terms of lifestyle modification because not only that, these are lifestyle chronic disease driven by lifestyle changes, right? So, and I think as Filipinos, we love food. Food. food is center in all our social gathering. Our food is not necessarily the healthiest. It's very good, but it's not necessarily the healthiest. And we also don't get involved a lot in physical activities. And if you follow the trajectory of Filipino migrants to the U.S., follow them from year to year, they basically increase their body mass index as years progress. So I think that's one that we could probably approach, not just treatment of that diseases, but preventing those diseases. In terms of the multi-generational, I really do appreciate the fact that we take care of our old people. We don't put them in the nursing home. What do you think will be a potential answer to that? It's our culture to take care of our olds. And it's not that we have all the resources to, we have the wealth to actually have a huge home to accommodate all the people that we need to take care of. So this is Mary Joy, and um, that's, that's very true. We are a multi-generational family, and we tend to at least live uh, near our parents, or even for myself, I can only speak for myself personally. We live with our in-laws. It's a two-family townhouse type of placement, right? And if you recall during the height of the pandemic, especially here in New York City, some of my friends live with their um, in-laws as well. And it was a great concern, especially if you're a frontline nurse. When I was speaking to one of the staff nurses that I reached out to, she has to make sure that she protects her family. She's lucky that she has a garage where she would be able to at least take off all her dirty clothes before she goes inside the house. But those are some of the precautions that our nurses, uh, Filipino nurses, have shared with me for their experience. At the same token, I have a personal relationship with some of those nurses that passed away. And when we hear these stories over and over again, it really touched me personally. Remembering how we worked together when I was at the ICU, when I used to work at Bellevue Hospital, and then just thinking about those days and now that person is gone because of the um, pandemic crisis. I actually reached out to one of my colleagues who was a respiratory therapist and her husband was documented as well as one of the nurses that work in the ED in Queens that passed away. And we have a personal connection because she is also a goddaughter of my mother-in-law. So that connection somehow makes this pandemic more personal and significant for uh, Filipino community. Uh, we have a member in Maryland who has the same story. Her father lived in the basement, never came out of the basement since the pandemic. But because they have a celebration for Thanksgiving, traditionally, right? We, as what you said, we gather together, break bread together and celebrate all the significant holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, we don't let that go away without seeing each other. But because of that celebration, unfortunately, all of them contracted COVID. And the worst part is that 
her father passed away. So those are the recurring stories that we hear over and over again. And I am pretty sure that it's the same as with any other nurses that work and have family members. Unfortunately, the numbers that are projected and have been reported in the media does portray that Filipino-American nurses are disproportionately affected. Much as we want to understand and to the point of your podcast, we try to struggle the why. We don't have the empirical data to really analyze whether it's really related to our genetics, right? Or because of the comorbidities that Dr. Aing have pointed out. But what I know when we launched the COVID-19 task force is that I immediately look at the demographics of our members and I can only speak for PNAA just for me to understand how many frontline nurses are working in specific areas. And it matches what Emily had said that majority, more than 50% of our nurses are frontline nurses. And there's a huge number of nurses that identify themselves working in critical care. So having that experience in the ICU, I understand what it means to be constantly near your patient. The suctioning, right? Imagine how many patients those nurses are having because of the surge of the pandemic. It's just unfortunate that you get exposed to COVID-19. Even during the early part of the pandemic, where we didn't understand much, we didn't have enough knowledge at the time, right? And we also had a shortfall of supplies. Mm -hmm. So basically, the N95s were just restricted to a lot of us, and nursing homes didn't get their supplies of even masks and no PPE. So some of the nursing home doctors would just use a garbage bag and put a hole on the top of it and then use that as a gown. So earlier on, as frontliners for Filipino nurses, they were exposed earlier on to the pandemics. And also you mentioned that, Emily, you mentioned that some of the nurses are already retired and they volunteered to be part of the workforce as early as March of last year, and they got exposed. Also, a lot of Filipino nurses stay on to their job up to the age, what, 70s? I even see people working. I know my two sisters are 84 and 85 and are still doing private caretakers at home, taking care of a blind lady and a cerebral palsy person. And they're 84 and 85. And to my dismay, they still love to work. So I think we have older nurses still staying on. We have comorbidities that we have to address. And I know one time Dr. Igor Makoro was put on a hotspot here because of a comment that Filipino nurses lack self-care. And I really like to explore that topic and tease that out because I think there's some substance into that that we could help take care of as a strategic innovation in how we should take care of ourselves and our Filipino healthcare force. So Igor, you're on the spot. Um, yeah, I still remember that. And actually, when I got invited in this talk, I was kind of like thinking about it. Because to be honest, I don't want to offend our Filipino nurses. I think our Filipino nurses, they don't deserve to be to having such pain and hurt. 
But I would say that the intention is really, I mean, I didn't really have that enough time, I would say, and I wasn't mindful that I don't have that control of that interview. But my main advocacy in that part, not only for COVID, is actually self-care in a way that as a nurse who've been through a lot of experiences, not only for myself, but also seeing a lot of people who've been through a lot of healthcare issues. I think self-care is something that is, it's broad. And I feel like we Filipino nurses, we came here in the United States because not only we want to earn, we have this American dream. We are compassionate. We want to help not only ourselves, but also our family. And with the COVID coming in, I can speak of myself and some of my friends who are working. And I received text messages from my former work asking me if I could cover because they don't have a nurse. And it's just hard when you think about some of your family members who don't have a job, some of your family members who may need it. This is like an opportunity to earn for some Filipino nurses and also an opportunity to be a hero, to volunteer for works. But at the same time, we are not just heroes. We are also like human beings who have limitations, who have vulnerabilities. And I would say a lot of us, even millennials, think that we're strong, that we don't get sick. But COVID is something that is new. It's something that happened abruptly and people are trying to understand. We don't have necessarily the data. And so without thinking of, I'm not saying that we are not taking care of ourselves, but I think sometimes we overdo. We give so much of ourselves. And to be honest, I tell you, I've been through a condition before. And I remember the doctor telling me, Igor, you have to remember yourself. You cannot give yourself if you cannot you have nothing to give. Like you have to protect yourself first. You cannot give all of yourself. It will bring you down. And unless you remember that, then you can't move forward. So with that, what always rings to me up to this time with the COVID and with all the things that's happening, like, and it's still a struggle for me. I have families back home. I even like text with my, with my friends, how are you doing? And some of my friends will say, I'm working 16 hours or like for five days, for 16 hours, I was like, <laughs> that's kind of like too much. And it's because they don't, we don't have staff. We have problem with staffing. And working in the management, sometimes my role is to fill up the staffing needs. But who will remind me or who will tell me that, hey, my staff are tired? Hey, my staff, you know, so if people will not talk, if we as Filipino nurses will not say, I can't do it this time, then it put us the risk of exposure. So basically, for me, it's really the exposure. We have PPE at the beginning. We didn't have the PPE. I mean, we do have, but it's not enough. We recycle depending on the facilities or hospitals, but it also have to be really about ourselves. So that was basically my message, learning to say no and learning to talk because a lot of my staff, like at my work, some of them, they can't just talk. They just say yes, especially when they see that the units are struggling, that there's no staffing. But that is also a problem that has to be taken in a wider context by the leadership, by the management, and even in the policy level, the government level. And I would say, I think one of the good thing that happened in California at the beginning of the pandemic is when the state offered free or low cost of hotels so we can address the problem of congregation and things like that. Mm-hmm. But again, this happened so quickly. And so it's so hard. We're struggling. We don't have the data. And when we got the data about Filipino nurses, it was a shock. But at the same time, part of me saying, with the data that I've seen before, like there was a study from UCLA and Brown University saying that we see Asian population as a model population. But actually, if we look at each of the categories of each of subpopulations, we see Filipinos and Vietnamese are lagging behind. 
on that model on that model minority myth right yeah exactly it's just hard for me i want to volunteer i want to earn money i want to support my family so i don't have job i can't see the virus you know i mean i don't see any stories we hear numbers but we don't necessarily hear the stories of people and i think it's very very important that people will speak about their stories and so when we started to see people talking about their family their coworkers we put a, a face on, on on the pandemic and yeah. i think it's really really important I agree with you. I think that's multifactorial, right? So it's not the lack of self-care, but we equate self-care selfless. And we Filipinos, by culture, we like to help, right? So I also do it because I don't have young kids at home now. What happened during the pandemic, a lot of my colleagues have to stay home with their kids because their kids now are being taught remotely and they have to be there. They can't have their nanny supervising that, so they have to be at home. So I always step up and cover shifts. So we can't say no, as what you said. You want to help. We always have in our language the pakikisama or kapwa, which means collaboration, helping, going along. And as a culture, we also don't speak up. We are not assertive to define to our leaders that, hey, you don't have enough workforce. You're exposing us. Some people who are here on a visa, they don't want to speak up for fear that their visa would not be renewed, right? So there's that population of Filipino nurses as well. So it's both culture, environment, and the way we do things that actually put us at risk. And it's really not just lack of self-care, but it's also we are basically selfless. I think we have to explore that and help also disaggregate the data. We are disaggregating data on hypertension and diabetes and put Filipinos on another bucket. And in that, we see that Filipinos are really highly affected by hypertension and diabetes. If we could do that on data like that, we could also do it. So we need you, Mary Joy, in informatics to try to kind of like help us disaggregate that data. Thank you for bringing that up because that has been part of our work with some of the chapters. The majority of our chapters do volunteer in terms of partnering with academic medical centers in doing community-based participatory research. What I do experience from my end is the challenge in trying to apply for grants, specifically for our Filipino-American community, not just nurses, right, in general. There is a push now in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And recently, I've read something about this from expanding biomedical research to also consider that the factor, right, in terms of expanding the availability of grants to diverse community because the face of America is changing. The projection of Asian American population have doubled up since 2010. It was like around, the growth was around 11%. Now it's more than that. When we think about what's going on with nursing, with the shortage, the patients that we take care of, It's no longer white America. We see a lot of different populations, our Hispanic community, our Asian American community. And we look at it on that equation. If I was a elderly patient and I see Mary Joy taking care of me, 
of course, absolutely, I will recognize a Filipino. I would feel lighthearted that someone is taking a video. I could talk to her in my language. Similarly, I think that would be the same case for a Hispanic or a Chinese patient. So I think having that diversity and also promoting nursing in different communities would really promote how we deliver care, not only in the hospital, but also beyond the hospital walls. Because when these patients go back to their home, they will they can only rely on how these medications were explained to them. And similarly, during a pandemic crisis, it's hard to facilitate that type of teaching and type of reaching out to the community. And we are just so lucky that we are able to partner with um, organizations like the Asian Pacific Islander American Health Forum, where we're able to facilitate the infection prevention control in our Asian community in partnership with other native Hawaiian Pacific Islander groups. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities here in terms of deciphering what we can do for the different groups. But I would say that the universal experience, even if you're white or black or brown, if you say like a Filipino nurse or a care worker will take care of you, they will have this big smile because they love Filipino healthcare workers. So we have to take care of our own healthcare workers. So I think this will be a platform for future strategic planning to be included in such a project to help our communities. Talking about a lot of the tasks like the healthcare workers are actually older than 50s, right? So if you could even disaggregate that according to age, I think Filipino nurses will be high up there in terms of still working at a certain age. I haven't seen a Filipino nurse who retired at 50 unless they were ill. Yeah. Very rare, right? They keep working. And why? Because the chance of being able to support our family in the Philippines to be able to send everyone to school because work in the Philippines is so hard. Here, there's an opportunity to work and we love the work. So we keep going. We keep working. I see Filipinos with two, three kids who are nurses and the mother is still working and they're like 80 years old. Now that we have the data, data and knowledge is only useful if we do something about it to make our lives better, to make our quality of lives better. How would we then use what we know in terms of making a strategic plan? I'm proud to say with PNA, we've had the COVID task force and we were collaborating with the practice committee and we had the program that we're rolling out what we're doing in response to this. And Dr. Ayin can explore more about that, but it's a very good moving forward and it's focused on well-being for our nurses. So Yeah, and I love to talk about it. Actually, <laughs> we have the pioneer here of the COVID-19 task force, which was really developed by Dr. Dia. She was the president-elect at that time. And when she stepped down uh, to become the president, she gave it to me. I'm happy that she gave it to me because in our organization, we need that. We were in the height of pandemic when Dr. Dia developed the COVID-19. And actually, one of the purposes of the COVID-19 task force is to develop programs to cater the psychological, physical, mental including the educational and the spiritual needs of our members. 
And also we fundraise for the heel of our nurses campaign. Because when COVID-19 is over or it is eradicated, there's still a lot of side effects that the COVID-19 will be leaving us. So that is we're also preparing for, that our nurses will be well prepared. We will prepare them and also help them to go through with the effects of the COVID-19. So when COVID-19 strike right away, we did also some priorities. We mask our nurses. We also did a lot of letter writing to our lawmakers because of the scarcity of the PPEs. And also we face shields our frontliners. We develop webinars that are COVID-19 related. So our nurses will be well-versed of what the COVID-19 is all about. And also what we did is we do also take care of our nurses because as you've said, we have older nurses and we need to see how they're doing. What are their reflections? Some of them are already widowed. And so we need to take care of them as well. And also the meditations, even the exercise of the Zumba, just to have that normalcy in our lives once in a while because we're so uptight. And also what we did also for our nurses is we did a lot because of the survey, we were able to know what our nurses needs. And one of them is to develop resiliency. We're developing resiliency and actually Dr. Dia had a person who do good about resiliency. And also we have the peer-to-peer group so we could support each other. And it's also coming up is the resource center for our nurses where they could go into, let's say they could not come and have to listen to or have the webinar and then they could do it because we will put it in the website and they just go there in their off time and watch that webinar and also other exercises. That's wonderful because I think Filipinos love social gathering and what's very special about COVID-19 is the isolation. Even when you get sick, I got myself sick. And the isolation, because people can't hug you, they can't be there even if they want to be there. And you don't want them to be there also because you expose them, right? So the phenomenal isolation that you experience during COVID, as you experience COVID, is so unprecedented. I think highlighting webinars, leadership courses, innovative work that Filipino nurses could highlight their work, education, but mental health. So this mental health in our culture from the Philippines and even here, mental health is always a tabooed subject. We'd rather do spirituality, prayers, go to church, but would not go to a mental health therapist. And I think we have to counter that and highlight that. I like the resilience courses, but I think Filipinos are one of the most resilient group of people because I think it's predicated upon our experiences of hardship. So when you are faced with hardship and you face one now, it's like, this is nothing. I mean, you see people in the Philippines in the height of a flood that they are on top of their roof and they're smiling on a picture and they're still happy and they lost half of their family to the flood. So I think we're really resilient and I think we should 
teach people resilience, right? But actually, we have to also take care of our mental health. And I'm not really sure how to do that with Filipinos because we don't talk about mental health. And if you talk about mental health issues, oh, no, that you don't talk about that because that's bad for our family. So how would you outline a good mental health landscape for Filipinos? That's a very good question, and I think that's why when this survey was facilitated initially by PNA Metro DC, the emotions behind the masks, we wanted to understand how are the emotional state of our nurses. And the result of that survey match what you have just described. 50% seems to be doing okay based on their responses. However, if you mirror the small number of individuals that would express how do they feel in terms of being frustrated, angry, feeling unsure of what's going to happen, that's probably around 30-35% of the population. And how do we engage these individuals, to your point, right? Because obviously, they're still going to work. People might be compartmentalizing their feelings, right? And they're not really focusing on, as what Igor had said, doing their own self-care. And this is where we work together with the practice committee, the COVID-19 task force. And uh, fortunately, some of our members are experts in uh, behavioral mental health. And that's how they were able to culturally tailor the program that Emily had mentioned, which is the Kabalikat program, in doing a two-pronged or multiple approach. The first piece is to do a peer-to-peer support where they will be able to facilitate like a small group discussions and encourage just a conversation, right? Just like what we're doing right now. Because when you're hearing someone say something, then it kind of like motivates you to self-identify and say, oh yeah, that's how I felt too. And hopefully we could break beyond that barrier. And hopefully if that person really would need some assistance or further help, this is where the experts would provide sort of like a PHQ um, survey. So the person can do their own self-assessment. We are professional nurses. We administer this to our patients, right? We give this as a requirement for people 65 and above in assessing their depression. We can use this for ourselves. You don't need to tell anyone. You can actually download it, right? And do your own self-assessment. And then see for yourself, will this be helpful for me? Because we know that the long-term effects and trauma of COVID-19 will stay with us for a long time. Even for myself, each time I speak about it, I get emotional because it's not only because it affected all of us when it hit New York City, it became more personal when Madeline got sick, who was the president at the time. Plus, when Madeline's husband passed away, it became more personal. It touched all of our chapters. We were all connected doing virtual rosary together. Mm-hmm. But still continues up to this time. It's going to be one year now, right? Mm -hmm. But it still feels as if it was just yesterday. And in fact, it affected me personally when my uncle passed away in December of COVID-19. It was real already for me, but it became more personal when a member of our family passed away. 
I think if you're affected by it either by seeing your family or close friend or yourself, like for me, I know the day though, but when it came to myself, I didn't know how to take care of myself. So talking about self-care, I'm such guilty about that because my own sister was begging me to go to the hospital, check yourself in. And I said, oh, there's no treatment for it because I know that data left and right, right? So, and, and she kept saying, yes, there's no treatment, but they could give you IV, they could give you oxygen, they could do this, and you don't have to go downhill by yourself. And so I said, nope. So she asked my son to come from L.A. So as my son was coming to San Francisco, my own colleagues, because they couldn't talk to me, I couldn't breathe. So I was sent to the ER on 911. If that did not happen, I swear to God, I probably would have been in the ICU with protracted, intubated state, and I don't know how I will come out of it. You know, self-care extends beyond, beyond of our own capability. We need our community to help each other, like the peer-to-peer, someone who could actually remind you, because you yourself may fail to do that. This will not be the only pandemic that we're going to face. I hate to say that there will be more and I don't know how long this pandemic would last. And as you said, it's already, gosh, it's already more than a year. So I think I still get emotional, as you said, Mary Joy, because I was too close to it. If you heard my podcast on telling about my near-death experience, I was so emotional. I was keeping myself from breaking down because it is. If you see, it's different. You see young people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I just had it. I, it's just like a cold. And 80% of COVID is just that. It's, it's like a cold. But unfortunately, 20% will go to the hospital, ICU, and may even die. So I think we have to work doubly to actually send the message of really taking care of ourselves and also doing the public health measures while waiting for the uh, herd immunity from what the vaccine and the infection will reach. So as soon as we reach that threshold, we will probably be close to normal. But I think we should send that message. I'm actually asking you now a take-home message from this podcast because we're at the end of it, believe it or not. So take-home message before we close our session. So I think our take-home message is to continue to stay vigilant. Don't be complacent. Even though we have gone through a lot of milestones in trying to combat COVID-19 and we are now in the process of encouraging everyone to have their vaccination, we still need to continue to follow CDC guidelines in terms of the social distancing and wearing of masks. We cannot be in the same situation where we were last year in terms of the surge of the pandemic. So I hope that All of this will keep us united as Filipino-American nurses and really focus on your self-care as what Juliet Igor have mentioned at the same time. And also look at how we spend our time because time is very important. Time will pass quickly and at the same time, focus that time for yourself so you could take care more of other people. Yes, thank you. I just want to thank you. Thank all the nurses for all the hard work and the care and the compassionate care to our COVID patients. 
And yes, take care of yourself and each other. And we will work together and get out of this pandemic. I will echo Emily for thanking our nurses. They are our unsung heroes. And this is my take home message for you. It is because we are nurses, we are invincible. No, we're not. We have to take care of ourselves too. Sometimes we probably need re-education when it comes to hand washing, gloving, doning and doffing of PPEs. Self-care is being well-informed, being careful and staying safe. Nurses, as nurses, we have also comorbidities and we have to take care of those comorbidities because that will make us vulnerable to COVID-19. And I always refer self-care as heal the healers. I just want to say thank you to all our aunties and aunties who's been really very supportive of BNAA. I haven't really been involved a lot because I feel like I've been working and actually I feel tired. I mean, there's like sometimes I just want to sleep for how many days and things like that. But it's something that I struggle and I know my friends struggle, especially our millennial nurses. We feel invincible. We are a hero, but we're also a human being. So I think we need to remember that. And out of all this happened, we may pass through it, but I think the pain is there, especially for those people who have families who are gone because of the pandemic. And, and it will remain. The pain will be there. We need more to heal. And I think that's really important. People will still have PTSD, will have trauma on this, and there's a lot of work to do. And we're a family. So thank you so much for the support and for the understanding. And hopefully we will get more, we will participate more, and we look forward for the leadership of BNAA. We're here and we will support and we will be watching and participating. And so we hopefully we, we come together and join whatever we have. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. And I would leave the audience in a spirit of collaboration. I look forward to a multifaceted approach to help not only our Filipino-American nurses, but all the healthcare workers out there. And I really trust in your inspiration and leadership. I really thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.